0: Hello again, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Divine Lantern. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and we're so glad that you could tune in today. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. We'll begin today's episode with talk three of a four-part series on prayer by Father Nabil. We'll also continue our Christ in the Psalms series and answer a question sent in by one of our listeners. Remember that if you'd like one of your questions on The Faith Answered, please send us a voice memo to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Let's begin the episode and we hope you enjoy it.
1: In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. As we continue the importance of prayer and life of the church, we are embarking on the third talk. Last week, we stopped when we talked about Christ as the primary teacher who taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. Continuing from where we left, I would like to stress on the biblical references about Jesus and his instructions to pray. First of all, we establish that Christ is our role model when it comes to prayer, among other virtues in our life. He tells us in the Gospel of Luke, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke eleven thirteen. We pray so that God can help us to follow in his footstep. We also pray for our renewal and the growth of our soul. We pray to give thanks to God for all he provides for us. We also pray to seek forgiveness for our sinfulness. We can also pray to seek help for others as well as ourselves. But we must not forget to pray for his help and our own spiritual growth. This is not selfish, but essential for us to better love and serve others and carry out God's commandments. We can ask also for his help in supporting us in the various ascetic practices we choose to undertake to help purify our inner being. We are asked to pray without ceasing. Here are some scripture references about this blessed teaching. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5:17. Praying always was all prayer and supplication in the Spirit according to Ephesians 6:15. And according to Luke 18:1. He spoke a parable to them that man always ought to pray and not lose heart. Our life is to become one of a constant prayer where we are continually in a relationship with God. This is our main task, to draw nearer to God. St. Isaac the Syrian says that It is impossible to draw near to God by any means other than unceasing prayer. Now turning briefly into the Lord's Prayer and how it affects the faithful. As a parish priest, I observe the faithful on many levels and on different occasions. It is amazing how the faithful respond and participate in the Lord's Prayer Once we start to pray, we begin by proclaiming the fatherhood of God, our Father, who art in heaven. However, the question remains in the mind of everyone. Am I really his child? Do I come to him in prayer and speak to him and tell him all my trouble? Do I really depend on him? Do I acknowledge that in him I live, in him I move? and in Him I have my being? These valid questions must be answered seriously on an individual level. This prayer teaches us about what and in what order to pray. Having turned to God our Father, we acknowledge ourselves to be His children and in relation to each other, brothers and sisters. And therefore, we pray not only for ourselves, but for all people. I will not go deep into the explanation of this most important prayer. However, one can say that the goal of the Christian faithful is to achieve the miracle of becoming truly the child of God and truly feels the adoption of God, which came to the whole of humanity through the incarnation of Christ. St. Paul is very clear about this adoption according to Ephesians 1 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Thus, the Lord's Prayer unifying within itself, for which, for unifying within itself all, for which it is necessary to pray. teaches us to place in proper order all of our personal desires and necessities. However, we must bear in mind that we put in our request and trust in him to do his will for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, O my Father, if it's possible, let this cup, pass from me and immediately added nevertheless not as i will but as you will matthew 26:39 references to prayers in the old testament and the new testament are innumerable certainly time does not permit us to go through them however i will bring to your attention few references about prayers that will serve various purposes and different needs. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, St. Paul encourages us to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This does not, this does not mean that we are to give thanks for everything, but in everything, we can say, Thank you to God for his faithfulness that he never leaves us or forsakes us and for his promise of eternal life through his Son, Jesus Christ. According to Ephesians 6.18, that spiritual prayer is in fact the fruit of the grace of the Holy Spirit and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Again, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. According to James 5.13, he says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction faithful in prayer and that's St. Paul to the Romans 12.12 12. and lastly according to Philippians 4.6 St. Paul says do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God clearly prayer was important to Jesus, it was his lifeline, as we mentioned before. It is his connection to the Heavenly Father. It equipped him for the battles he was about to face. It kept alive the intimate relationship that sustained him, and it revealed to him God's desires and direction. If our goal as Christian faithful is to become more Christ-like, That process should include imitating his actions and living out his words that are written in the gospel. The content of the gospel transforms us from what we are to what Christ wants us to be. We can say that praying and reading the scriptures is not about information, rather it is about transformation. According to St. Paul in his letter to Romans 12.2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we pray, we will become more Christ-like and we will find that prayer changes us. Here I would like to quote C.S. Lewis who puts it in this very nice way. He says, Prayer does not change God. It changes me. Prayer also reveals the wisdom of God. According to Prophet David, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111 verse 10. The best part about prayer is that it's a conversation that goes both directions. Yes, we will talk to God, but when we spend time with him and are willing to receive, we will also hear from him. I would like to share a little story with you. Not long ago, I read this story about an old faithful lady who lived by herself. She was asked the question by her neighbor, don't you get bored, no one comes to visit, and you don't go out anywhere? How do you pass your time? She gladly answered, I dedicate time to my heavenly father. And when I want to listen to him, I read the gospel. And when I want to talk to him, I stand and pray. Having regular ongoing conversation with the almighty God, the creator of the things visible and invisible, is one of the highest privileges for the Christian life. The word of God has the power to reveal the true intentions of our heart, of our hearts, according to Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of heart. The references of prayers recorded in scriptures can help us to learn how to pray with godly motives. I shall shed a light on the scripture testation to prayers and the benefit of reading the scriptures as they are prayers in themselves. In so doing, certainly we can develop in us, and in many ways, an understanding of the instructions that are given by our Lord for our salvation. After all, the gospel is the good news of salvation. Till our next episode, may God bless, guide, and protect us all. Amen.
0: Thank you, Father Nabil. We look forward to hearing your final talk on the topic of prayer in the upcoming weeks. And now for the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy neptic fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. For a life pleasing to God is like a precious chain and gilded necklace, with one gleaming virtue interlocking with the next and all fastened together to form a unified whole. Moreover, the many
1: different virtues constitute a single work, the deification of the person who sincerely lives by them. Saints Callistos and Ignatius
0: If your intellect is freed from all hope in things visible, this is a sign that sin has died in you. If your intellect is freed, the breach between it and God is eliminated. Saint Isaiah the Solitary According to how you treat the soul while it is in the body, so will it treat you when it leaves the body. He who has treated his body, he softly and indulgently, has treated himself ill after death. For like a fool, he has condemned his soul. Saint Anthony the Great On july twenty third in the Holy Orthodox Church we commemorate the recovery of the precious relics of the holy Hiromata Focas, Bishop of Sinope. The glass of thy pains brought the faith into focus, hence we magnify thee, O Focas, forever. On the twenty third, Focas was born away dead. Focas exercised himself in all the Christian virtues from his youth. As bishop in his birthplace, the town of Sinope on the shores of the Black Sea, he strengthened the faith of the true believers by his example and divine words and converted many idol worshippers to the true faith. The hard-hearted pagans were filled with rage against holy Fokas. Through a vision granted him by the Lord, he foresaw his martyrdom for Christ. Phukas saw a white dove fly down from heaven carrying a beautiful wreath of flowers in its beak and lowered the wreath onto his head. He was not afraid but with gratitude toward God prepared himself for suffering. A certain prince, Africanus, took Phukas for interrogation and subjected him to harsh tortures and after a time of imprisonment threw him into boiling water where this brave soldier of Christ ended his earthly life and settled into the joy of his Lord. Foucault suffered during the reign of Emperor Trajan in 102. On this day, we also commemorate the Hieromartyrs Apollinaris and Vitalis, bishops of Ravenna, martyr Apollonius of Rome, and the holy prophet Ezekiel. By the intercessions of thy saints, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen.
1: Is there a separate catechism process for baptised Christians of other denominations who are looking to join the Orthodox Church?
0: In order to answer this question, it's helpful to be clear on what we mean by catechism and how the church fathers viewed the topic. The word catechism comes from a Greek word which roughly means to learn through hearing. A catechumen is an inquirer into the faith, someone who is learning about orthodoxy with the intention to eventually join the church. A catechism is a text or program which is used to teach inquirers about the faith. An orthodox catechism program would cover important topics like the doctrines of the church and how to practice the orthodox faith. A catechism program is normally delivered by a catechist, that is, a priest, deacon, bishop or another person who is assigned the role by the bishop. An important characteristic of an orthodox catechism process is the personal relationship that is established with the catechumen. Catechumens are not just given a book to read or test to complete to join the church. The catechism process is modelled on the way that Jesus Christ himself taught his disciples. Jesus Christ spent time with his disciples, spoke his parables and had many sayings but did not write anything. The orthodox catechism process is centred around discipleship and as the literal meaning of the word indicates, to learn through hearing. St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great Orthodox Church Fathers, writes Indeed, the same manner of teaching will not be suitable for all who approach the Word, that is, the Scriptures, but the catechesis must also be made to suit the differences of religions, looking to the same aim of the discourse, but not using proofs in the same manner. The Church Fathers understood that they had to tailor their catechism based on the background and understanding of their audience. In the early church, that usually meant addressing two different audiences, Greeks, which refers to pagans in general, and Jews. In general, the Fathers would use philosophical argumentation for the Greeks and scriptural arguments for the Jews. Having considered all this, it's clear that the Orthodox Church could not possibly have a single catechism for baptized Christians from non-Orthodox denominations. Even if we have two people from the same non-Orthodox background, we cannot expect them to be taught in the same way because their understanding may differ. This is why a catechism isn't a book that is given for private reading, but should involve ongoing discussion between the catechist and catechumen. Unless we hear the gospel from someone within the church, then we may be led astray by any number of opinions that are accessible to us today. This is especially true in the age of the internet. Just as it is the case with the holy scriptures, we may still misunderstand sound writings if we do not have someone to interpret them for us. Coming back to the question of how a non-orthodox Christian is received into the church, this differs based on several factors and it depends on the beliefs of the faith they are coming from. For example, some Christian sects are not trinitarian and do not baptised in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this case, the catechumen will likely have to be re-baptised. However, non-orthodox Christians who are baptised in the name of the Holy Trinity may be received by chrismation only. Historically, according to the canons of the ecumenical councils, some non-orthodox Christians were even received into the church if they simply renounced their heresy. In the end, it is up to the discretion of the local bishop as to how non-Orthodox Christians should be taught and received into the Orthodox Church, since the bishop would be familiar with the local situation. If you or someone you know is considering joining the Orthodox Church, speak to your parish priest and they will be able to provide guidance for your particular situation. The following segment is called Christ in the Psalms. Traditionally called the Songs of Praise, the Psalms are often attributed to King David, though some were written by different authors. Various Psalms and verses are used in all our liturgical services, and so are imperative to the Orthodox Christian. Christ in the Psalms, written by Father Patrick Henry Reardon, explores how they point toward the ultimate liberation of humanity from sin,
2: death and despair. Through Jesus Christ. Psalm 102 is another of those psalms in which the believer addresses mainly his own soul. It both commences and ends with the invitation, Bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm is an outstanding illustration of that special quality of Christian prayer that we may call the interiorization of sacred history. That dimension of the Bible that St. John Cassian calls its third sense. A word of explanation may be in order here. The second sense of Holy Scripture, following Cassian's schema, is its relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Bible is fulfilled. He is the exegetical key. He is the Lamb who opens the seven seals of its mysteries. Any reading of Holy Scripture, then, that attempts to bypass its fulfillment in Christ will attain only to the letter that kills, not the Spirit that gives life. But we Christians, precisely because we are in Christ, also read the Bible as our own book. The Bible is a word directed to our hearts, the perfect law of liberty that reflects our own natural faces. The lengthy story of God's dealings with his people is the history of our own souls. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When you pray, wrote Saint Jerome, you speak to the bridegroom, When you read the Bible, He speaks to you. The reading of Holy Scripture is thus a privileged locus of the Christian's dialogue with the Lord. For the soul in Christ, the Bible is preeminently the book of the heart, where we study our own history and come to know our own identities in Christ. This third sense of Scripture corresponds to what Bernard of Clairvaux meant when he called the Bible the book of experience. It means that we do not correctly interpret the Bible except in permitting the Bible to interpret us. One observes in Psalm 102 this great effort to take into one's own heart God's manifold acts of mercy all through the history of the Bible. This is the God who made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the children of Israel. This is the historical God of the covenant and the commandments. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. It is to this interiorization of the commandments, this remembrance of the everlasting covenant, that this psalm summons the soul. Forget not all his benefits, he forgives all your iniquities. This inner knowledge of the forgiving mercy of God is a substance of the covenant that we have with God in Christ. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This knowledge of the true God is inseparable from the forgiveness of our sins, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. In Psalm 102 then, the soul is called to the contemplation of God's infinite forgiving mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Indeed not, for while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a psalm appropriately to be prayed in front of an icon of the cross. For only in the crucified Jesus is it truly fulfilled. The four dimensions of the cross, its length and breadth, its height and depth, are the dimensions of God's mercy. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This hesed or mercy of God is not a hazy benevolence. It has a definite history that climaxes in specific acts of salvation for Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and again, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. This is a psalm then, to be needed carefully into the leaven of the soul, for it is concerned with the blood forgiveness we receive in Christ our Lord. It may especially be recommended as part of one's regular thanksgiving after the sacrament of confession.
0: Thank you all for tuning in to another installment of The Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our archdiocese, please visit our website www.antiochian.org.au. And just a reminder that if you'd like your question on the faith answered throughout the podcast, please shoot it through as a voice memo to tdl at antiochian.org.au. We hope you have a blessed day and we'll catch you all next week.